Roughly two dozen games remain in the NBA's second half as I'll preview what the landscape in the association looks like, including the most important games in LeBron James' career. The Maple Leafs make a big trade as they're thinking about the chase for Lord Stanley's Cup. Why Eric Bieniemy's lateral move to D.C. is a good thing for the former chief offensive coordinator. Remembering former catcher and legendary broadcaster Tim McCarver and Manny Machado is pulling an Aaron Judge. Plus Tiger Woods' return after seven months. More top teams losing in college basketball. Anyone interested in the XFL? And a historic win at the Daytona 500. A sports dead zone? Not this week. And there's quite a bit to chew on over the next hour. It is all coming up. But first, this message. J Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. On this President's Holiday Monday, there are no such thing as days off when it comes to the sports universe. And it's my pleasure to fill you all in with nothing but passion in my voice, entertainment from the soul, and plenty of opinions, thoughts, and analysis from the brain as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back as we're now getting deeper into February, the final week of February, even though once we get to next Monday, we have the 28th and then March is coming and it will be here. And not only that, come March 1st, just nine days from today, We'll celebrate a fifth anniversary of the podcast, which we'll talk about then and maybe toward the end of the week, I'll bring it up a little bit. But to get right to it, front and center right now is going to be the NBA for me because what we witnessed over the weekend, All-Star, and I watched in total probably five minutes of it. I happened to be home Saturday night. I did not watch the skills competition where I believe the Utah team won. I did not watch the three-point shooting contest where Damian Lillard won. I did catch the very end of the slam dunk competition with Mac McClung, him winning the slam dunk competition with three dunks that had 50 across the board, which was pretty surprising. And to me, the dunks weren't really overwhelming. I understand the last one with the double pump reverse, or in fact, that was the second one. The last one was the 360 reverse dunk. It was almost a, I believe, 540 
But as it was, certainly didn't harken back to the days of Julius Irving going back to the 70s or even early 80s for that matter or Kobe Bryant in the 98 slam dunk competition. Vince Carter, we could go down the list of some of the great competitions that we've seen. Dominique and MJ, how can we forget that one? And then yesterday... I understand Jason Tatum, the Celtic that he is, 55 points, but did you watch any of that? I did see five minutes of it because I happened to be changing channels and I said, you know what, second half's about to begin. Let me just spend a couple of minutes on this. And despite the fact that Jason Tatum was raining threes in the early portion of that third quarter, he ended up with 55 points in the game, was your MVP of the All-Star game. But when everything is Matador defense, and let's just have everybody parade to the hoop, to the cup. It was either a layup, dunk, or a three-point shot. And to me, that's not basketball, just like I've been stating going back to the past week. And now that we could put all that to bed, and I get it for the 20-year-old, they probably loved that. They probably looked at that as entertainment. You didn't have LeBron play in the second half as well as Giannis. Now, I did see LeBron Toward the end, in highlights, I thought to myself, wait a minute, if he's taking pictures with people and they had the halftime where he was with Karl Malone and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the top three leading scorers in NBA history, which I found that to be a little bit odd, but I get it. It's an all-star game. It's not as if it was halftime of a playoff game where they're doing this. But for the all-star teams led by the captains, Team LeBron and Team Giannis, at the end of the day, We could put it to rest, we could put it to bed, and now move on to bigger and better things where the NBA season is not going to pick up until Thursday. So unlike years past where your All-Star break was pretty much from Friday to about Monday and then the game started up Tuesday night, we're not going to have pro basketball until Thursday. And as we take a look at the second half, if you listen to me or listen to the podcast on Thursday, I talked about the NBA quote-unquote first half. We understand it's more than halfway through. A lot of the teams that played anywhere between 59 to 61, maybe even 62 games for some. But the second half of this NBA season, how I look at it, it's top-heavy in the East and in the West. I'm not going to say it's wide open, but it's a little bit more wide open because you have two teams that may be laying in the weeds to get themselves to a point where they may play in a conference final or even go to the NBA finals. And the first one, that being Phoenix, even after the Kevin Durant trade, I said that they are not going to make it to a final. And it's contingent on him being 100% healthy, as we know. And for the Suns, who have made this trade and have put all their chips in the middle of the table, knowing that two years ago they had a 2-0 lead against the Bucks and squandered it to them getting swept from that point on, and knowing... That you have Chris Paul, who for everything that he's done throughout the course of his career, the one thing that is missing, not only on his resume, but I'm sure for him personally, is to win that NBA championship. And having Durant there is going to be a huge plus. But it's also a big if for everything that I mentioned about his health and him being consistently in the lineup for them to get deep into the postseason. But it's a little bit more open out there because we are uncertain about the... Denver Nuggets, I'm going to put them on the griddle only because as great of a season as they've had with the two-time reigning MVP, but do you trust Denver in a big spot, whether it's in a second round? I'm not even talking about conference final. Second round. We saw them lose to Portland a few years back, if you recall, in the 2018 
2019 season where, or maybe it was 2017, 2018. No, it was 2018, 19, because that's when Toronto played Golden State in the final. But for the Nuggets to really show and prove that they belong, not only just out West, but as one of the elite teams in the sport, we haven't seen it on a big scale on whether or not this team's going to deliver in a big moment. So for Denver, even Memphis, I understand that they got their comeuppance against the Golden State Warriors last year. You had the veteran team who knew how to win and knows what it takes to win to the young upstart that obviously needed that experience. They needed to get their legs, their sea legs, and what it's like to play in an atmosphere like the postseason. But you're still uncertain on whether or not they could take their game to the next level, to where they could get to a conference final, and dare I say, an NBA final. Sacramento, they're currently third in the West. Obviously, we don't know what they're going to be like. To me, I look at them as maybe the Memphis of last year, this year, and maybe they can win a first-round series and then maybe go to a second round and push it to six, maybe even seven games, which would be a great stepping stone and a learning process for that young squad. But as we all know, unlike the East where you have Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, teams that have been around the block and knows what it takes to win. I understand maybe not Philadelphia because it's not as if they've been to a conference final or even NBA final, but because of the track record of the coach, although when you look at the last 10 years, whether he was in LA as a coach of the Clippers or even Philadelphia, he's been unable to break through to get himself to that pinnacle, to that mountaintop, going back to his days when he coached the Celtics in the late 2000s, early 2010s. So when you have those teams and then you have the Clippers where a lot is expected from them this year and they're that team with Phoenix that can maybe make that push to get to a conference final and maybe for the first time in their franchise's history an NBA final and that's where the West is a little bit more wide open than the East. And that's why I find it a little bit more fascinating because when you have teams like even the Mavericks now with Kyrie teamed up with Luka Can they be a dark horse team that could get to a conference final or an NBA final? I don't think so. But when you have a dynamic backcourt like that, and if they're going to put up in a postseason anywhere between 55 to 65 points between the two of them, that could be dangerous for a team that is looking to get to that lofty position, especially when you have a guy like Luka who is looking to take his game and his stature to the next level based on last year when he obliterated these Suns in a Game 7 on the road and made it to his first conference final, but now can he take that next step with Kyrie in tow? We could talk about the Pelicans and how they've been playing a little bit better, but overall they had that tough losing streak that they went through, and who knows when Zion's going to come back. The T-Wolves, Carl Anthony Towns, we know he's been on the shelf, and they've certainly underachieved this year with the Rudy Gobert trade from Utah. Golden State, I've said it before, I don't think they're going to click this year. Will they have a moment or two? I would think so, only because they are the Warriors. But for me, I'm not looking at this team to be one that's, oh, once the playoffs are going to start, they're going to be dangerous, they're going to be a threat, they're going to be a team that is going to easily make it to a conference final. I don't think so. It has not clicked for that team this year. And then, of course, they're the Lakers, who are currently a half game back, or excuse me, two games back of the... 10th seed in the Western Conference, as we all know, that's 7-10 through 10 with the playing tournament. 
And LeBron over the weekend during the All-Star festivities did come out to say that these are going to be the most important games in the regular season that he's played in his career. And you can understand why he said that, and it's not much of a stretch. And for those who are thinking, oh, geez, there's LeBron just being dramatic. How can he look at these games as being the most important of the regular season, etc.? Well, think about it, people. He didn't make the playoffs last year. If you recall two years ago, they got bounced by the Suns in the opening round, and that was without Anthony Davis from the middle point of Game 4 on. The year before that, all right, they won the title, no problem, although it was in the bubble. The year before that, they didn't even make it to the playoffs. So to think this is his fifth year in L.A., where so far, two of the four years, he didn't even make it into the postseason, and right now, their team is on the verge of not making it to the playoffs for back-to-back years and three times in possibly five years that LeBron has been in L.A. So he is looking at these next, whatever it is, I guess 23 games that's left on their schedule as playoff games. Because he knows for his competitive nature and for who he is, and not that this is going to be a knock on his legacy because this is not all on LeBron, because as much as people want to just piss on his parade and look at him as his career on a whole compared to the greats of the game, that if he doesn't make it to the postseason, people are going to say, oh, look at LeBron. Even on the Lakers, even with that squad, for the second year in a row, he wasn't able to get his team or drag it across the finish line, even if it was to be in a playing tournament. Well, what do you got to say about the 2007 Cavs who had nobody on the team? Please, Booby Gibson. Yeah, guys like that on the team. And not to knock those guys, but those guys were not by any means worthy of being in an NBA final. He dragged that team and a bunch of ragamuffins into that 07 final where they got swept by the Spurs. So as much as we want to talk about how LeBron, if he doesn't make it to the postseason this year, there's going to be a knock on his legacy, nonsense. But with that being said, these games are going to be important because the league not only needs to see the Lakers there, but they need to see LeBron there. Of course, for ratings, Eyeballs to the sets, a storyline that a lot of people are going to try to rally around when it comes to LeBron on this Laker team, being able to see what they can do to come postseason. If you ask me, similar to the Warriors, I think they're going to be hanging around. They're going to be, not going to say laying in the weeds, but they're going to be within striking distance of making it into that playing tournament. And even with all the recent trades that they made and the guys that they brought in, the D'Angelo Russells, the Mo Bambas, Is it going to be enough? And I think it should be enough. But is it going to be over the course of the next six, seven weeks enough time for this Laker team to jumpstart this quote-unquote second half to get themselves in a position to make it into the playing tournament and then roll the dice when you get into the real tournament with the final eight? I don't know. And right now I have to say I don't think so. Why should it all of a sudden change based on these acquisitions and based on the urgency that LeBron has, because yes, he could play stellar, and he could do whatever it takes, whether it's scoring, rebounding, passing the ball, defense, etc., but what about the other 11 guys on the team? Are they going to have that same commitment? Are they going to have that same fervor to know that, yes, night in, night out, we have to play with that sense of urgency. We have to play as if it's our last game. That all these games that are remaining, and they're currently 27 and 32, so they do have 23 games left, are these games going to be almost single elimination NCAA tournament style, knowing that 
every one of these games are important for them to get to the playoffs, or in this case, to the playing tournament. Because as it's constituted, they are three and a half games behind the Mavericks for the sixth seed, and we can't expect them to make that much more ground or make up that type of deficit. And I understand three and a half games doesn't seem to be a lot, but with the Mavericks and what they've done to improve, and even Phoenix, who are a game ahead of Dallas in the Western Conference, to me, how I look at it is, is that it's not an insurmountable task. But if you're a Laker fan, you just want to be part of that 7-10 through 10 range first, and then you kind of see where you're at once you get there as far as any type of threat to maybe even coming close to either being a 7, 8 seed, or even approaching a 6 seed. That's what I have out west, and that's where it's intriguing. Because in the east, if we flip that over, we know it's going to be Celtics, Bucks, Sixers. They're going to be the top three, and it's going to be a fight between the Celtics and Bucks as to who gets the one seed. And even though Giannis said last week that that's not our focus, we're not looking to get home court, and I understand that home court is different pretty much in all sports, but especially in the NBA, because we've seen teams win game sevens on the road, whether it's in the first round, more so in the conference semifinals, conference finals, etc. Because in the first round, usually those series are over in five, six games. If it does go to a seventh game, usually the home team does have the advantage because the road team is usually going to be your six, seven, or eight seed who just barely got into the postseason. And for them to pull out an upset on the road is almost impossible. So when you get to that second round, when we look at the Bucks and Nets a few years ago, where if it wasn't for Kevin Durant's big toe stepping on the line for that three-pointer, the Nets would have gone on to the conference finals. But as we know, the Bucks were able to win in overtime a game seven on the road. And we've seen that go through a whole laundry list. I went through Dallas and Phoenix just a little while ago with Luka and how they blew out the Suns there in that game seven in Phoenix. But I still think that at the end of the day, if you're a competitive player, if you're a team that wants to go far in the postseason, I'm sure to a man, would they rather have game seven in their building or have to go on the road? And I'm sure they're going to say they'd rather have it at home. They'll sleep in their beds. They'll have their normal routine on the road. Who knows if you're going to get a decent night's sleep and dealing with crowds, bus rides over, etc. I understand it may be minor. They're professionals. They know what it takes. But still, I'm sure they'd rather have that game seven in their building as opposed to have to do it on the road. But that's where we're going to see how those two teams are going to fare down the stretch. I can't throw out Philadelphia just yet because there are two games on a loss behind both Milwaukee and Boston. But we know Philadelphia is a team we can't trust based on not only the head coach, but also Embiid in big spots. Also James Harden, a year older. We know the back of his playoff resume, as I've said a million times over, especially when we get to the spring. He's a guy that you cannot trust in a big spot. And then you have those other teams in the middle, whether it's Cleveland, could they maybe make a push for a conference final considering the overhaul they had this offseason bringing in a guy like Donovan Mitchell with that young core. The Brooklyn Nets, as they pick up the pieces from Kyrie and KD leaving and having guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and Cam Thomas, who's had his moments to go along with Michael Bridges and Cameron Johnson, guys like that who are looking to see what they could do as far as maybe having some respectability and maybe winning around and seeing where they could actually go if they could even think about going deep into the postseason. 
Then you look at other teams at the bottom of the East, whether it's the Knicks, the Heat, who may be bringing in Kevin Love, I believe. I don't know if it's official just yet, but since the Cavs bought him out of his contract, I believe he intends to sign with the Heat, so he's going to be another figure, another component that they're going to add to that team. And let's see if he stays healthy and if he could just do something or anything just to spread the floor. We understand that he could make threes and maybe get some big rebounds and knows what it takes to win being on that Cavalier team going back to 2016 that won a title. So to have that type of veteran presence there to go along with other teams, whether it's the Hawks, the Wizards, the Raptors, we have to wait and see. Maybe the Wizards, they bring back Russell Westbrook. That remains to be seen. But these teams, we don't expect, even if they do get out of the playing tournament to make any noise. I understand that he could be dangerous. And a team like the Knicks, they've played well. They've been inconsistent, but they've relatively have hung in there, 33 and 27. They're currently sixth in the Eastern Conference. So despite the fact that there is a disparity between both conferences, I think that the East, we could pretty much tell who's going to come out of that conference, whether it is going to be Boston, Milwaukee, maybe Philly. Other than that, I can't see any of the other teams. Maybe the Heat. Maybe they get to a conference final. Are they going to overtake whomever they play in the conference final to go to an NBA final? It's possible based on the Heat culture and the coach and they have gutty players on that team. But I don't know if they're going to still have that one guy. They need to have that dagger guy that you didn't see in the game seven where Jimmy Butler's taking that three to end the game. And we know Butler is a heart and soul, blood and guts type of player. And he does get your points, but he's not that sniper. He's not that sharpshooter that you know that from behind the arc, he's going to be draining threes in his sleep. And as I detailed out West, we understand that it's a little bit more open based on the top part not being proven, not showing that they're able to do it consistently and especially on a big stage where the teams on the bottom rung, whether it be the Clippers, the Suns, Dare I even say the Warriors, only based on their track record, although I don't think they're going to go deep this postseason. But that's where you have the difference between what could take place out West and what we have in the East. And other than that, that's pretty much how I look at the second half. Of course, I'm not going to break down who I think is going to go to a final. I picked early in the year that it was going to be Brooklyn. I believe it was going to be Brooklyn and the Clippers. That was my pick. Well, the Nets were going to win. Now, obviously, this was before Kyrie and Kevin Durant were going to be traded. So now that's definitely going to go out the window. But I think when we look at the league on a whole, you're probably looking at five teams right off the top that could win the NBA championship. Boston, Milwaukee, Denver. I'm going to say Phoenix, only because if Durant's healthy, they could go to a final and win. And I'm going to say Memphis. Now, hopefully they could learn from what took place last year and not think that it's going to be an automatic for them to get to an NBA final. I could throw the Clippers in there, but the Clippers, I don't trust them, even though I picked them to go to a final. So maybe I could say five and a half teams if there's such a thing. But those are the teams I think that can make it to a final and win. I could see Philly making it to a final, but I don't trust them either. And everybody else in the East, I can't put in that hat of those handful of teams that I think could win. But that's what I'm looking at here in the second half. And we shall see how it all breaks down as we get deeper into the month, into March. And then obviously, once everything concludes there in the second week of April. So we'll stay tuned for that. 
Now I'll turn my attention to college basketball briefly. I know in the last couple of podcasts, I've gone from NBA to NHL and I kind of forgotten the college basketball. But, uh, oh, one other thing I didn't mention, Joe Mazzulla, who coached the team, I believe Team LeBron, I don't even know, one of the all-star teams from last night, he got the interim tag dropped and gets an extension with the Celtics and deservedly so. They had the best record in the sport by a slim margin, not only over the Bucks but also the Nuggets out West. So congratulations to him. He's done a phenomenal job. First time coaching, young guy, and it was dicey. Who knows how the team was going to respond to him, but because they had some familiarity, him being an assistant, and the job that he's done, I know you could question a couple of things as far as his coaching, unlike his predecessor, or even the one before that in Brad Stevens, but he's going to really earn his money come playoff time, and that's where we're going to see, because the regular season, he could have a 62-20 and year, or somewhere about that, 58-24, and and it could be all peaches and cream, but as we know, forget about the first round, you think they'll... Get past that, but really from conference final, or to say conference semifinal on, that's where he's really going to be graded on whether or not he's going to be a big time coach in this league. So we'll just keep that in mind. Now onto the college basketball where we've had a few more teams in the top 10 lose. We talked about it the other day where Alabama lost to Tennessee and then in turn, the Volunteers lose to Kentucky, which is a little bit of a bright star or a little bit of some hope for the Wildcats when we take a look at Selection Sunday which will be three weeks from yesterday as the Wildcats are on the bubble on the outside looking into the tournament and this will go a long way to see whether or not they could make it in with a team like Tennessee who is ranked 10th and I'm sure they'll drop a little bit with that loss but you had Purdue lose to Maryland earlier this week and Purdue they've been losing left and right whether it's to Indiana a couple weeks back Wisconsin Now here against the Terrapins and Purdue, who knows if they even end up as a one seed when it's all said and done when it comes to Selection Sunday. So that's something we're going to have to keep our eyes out for. Kansas was able to exact revenge on the Baylor Bears as they lost to them earlier this year. But this time, Baylor had to go to Kansas to Allen Fieldhouse and took care of the Bears 87-71. Now, although Baylor was ranked ninth in the nation... But Kansas will probably move up as we saw Alabama. I'm sure they may stay around one as they won a couple of days ago. I forgot against two off the top of my head as I believe they beat Georgia now that I think about it. Excuse me. So there may be a little bit of position that's going to be jockeying at the top when it comes to the ranked teams in the nation. I would think it may stay as it is with Alabama, Houston. I think Purdue's going to drop where you have UCLA and Kansas move up in the rankings. You would think that Purdue may drop as low as five. Then you have Texas, Virginia, Arizona. I think Baylor and Tennessee, who are both ranked ninth and 10th, they'll probably drop down a spot or two. And as we continue to talk about, and this is probably going to be the theme, unless there's going to be some separation between now and conference championship week leading into Selection Sunday, but I can't stress enough people, and I'm going to sound like a broken record between now and the second week of March, how this is going to be the ultimate toss-up of a tournament. You could pretty much throw all 64 names when it's all said and done of these teams in a hat, and the first four that you pick could be your final four teams that are going to represent here in this tournament. That's all there is to it. 
I'm not breaking any ground. I'm not breaking any news. This isn't a shock to anybody. I know people saying, yeah, whoop-de-doo, J-Reels. We understand that. We follow the sport. We know that this is going to be that type of year. Well, unless things change, unless there's going to be some separation where we're going to see the cream rise to the top and we're going to eventually see that in the sport, we would think. But again, we don't know what's going to happen here, not only just in these next two, three weeks, but obviously once we get into the tournament. So... Fashion your seatbelts even now because I'm sure it's going to be a wild ride between now and the first Monday of April as to who's going to come out on top and cut down the nets there when it comes to the NCAA tournament. Now to unlace the high tops and strap on the skates to go around what's happening on ice with the NHL. The Maple Leafs had let it be known and I'm not trying to make Ryan O'Reilly out to be Mark Messier. But the Maple Leafs have made a significant trade where the deadline is going to be March 3rd. So you still have another, what, 10 days or so before that comes about. But for the Maple Leafs to acquire Ryan O'Reilly as well as Noel Akiari from the Blues, for not only two players, but the Leafs' first-round pick this year, I guess they have the Senators' third-round pick of this coming year from a trade, whether it was in the last year or so, and then their own second-round pick of next year, to know that the GM, Kyle Dubas, and he even said that this trade puts them in a position to win the Cup. The pressure is already on Toronto, not only to make it to a Stanley Cup, because if you've listened to this podcast, especially in the last couple of springs, and maybe even early on this year, we know that the bugaboo for this franchise and this organization is to try to get past the first round. And as we've seen just over the last couple of years, they had to go up against a Tampa Bay team in the first round, which I know was... Tough to say the least. You're going up against a team that won back-to-back Stanley Cups, and here they are, and they had no mice, I might add, the Maple Leafs. And they lose a seven-game series, a tough seven-game series to the Lightning there. And the year before that, their nemesis, although the Canadiens going way back, where they're the Yankees of the sport, Montreal that is, and Toronto, although that is the hockey hotbed, Toronto, Ontario, and everybody knows how big the Maple Leafs are, not only just in that city, in that province, but pretty much for the whole country. Because Montreal, you got to remember, that is in Quebec. That's French Canada, where the Maple Leafs, they pretty much represent all of Canada. And for the GM to come out to say that this puts us right now on, I'm not going to say the express lane to the Stanley Cup, but those words, I'm sure they trickle down from the front office to the coaching staff and to the players to say, If we don't get out of the first round this year, then we may have to blow the whole team up. Those are some big words. Let's just call it as we see it. Here in the latter part of February, and I get it that this move was made, a guy like Ryan O'Reilly who won a cup on the 2019 St. Louis Blue team, and knowing that they need to have that presence, that calming influence, that guy that knows what it takes to win. In the National Hockey League. And remember, the Blues won their Stanley Cup Game 7 on the road in Boston. There I go with the home ice or the home court scenario when it comes to what would you rather do? Rather have it on the road or at home? And it's a very interesting debate because of what we've seen here over the last, I'd say, dozen years to go as far back as that. But that's another story for another day. But Toronto, this is one that we're going to have to pay attention to, not necessarily in the immediate future because this move was made for April 
May, and June. Similar to what the Rangers did by bringing in Vladimir Tarasenko from St. Louis to have that lasting impact and to have his fingerprints on this team for what they do in the postseason. And I understand these are guys that are just coming in. They're just trying to fit in. They're not going to puff out their chest or have any type of bravado to think that, all right, this is my team. No, 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 no. But knowing that they come from a winning background, that they, like I said, knows what it takes to win. And these acquisitions here, whether it's the Rangers or even more so the Maple Leafs, and the reason why I say Toronto is because, A, they have not been out of the first round in forever, and B, they have not won a Stanley Cup since 1967. And for everything that I mentioned about this Maple Leaf team, the history of Toronto, their organization, the, you can go on down the list. Daryl Sittler, Borey Salming, I understand they didn't win Stanley Cups, but going back to the days of Punch Imlac, if you don't know who he is, look him up. This Maple Leaf team is definitely boom or bust, and they've played very well this year. They're in second place currently in the Atlantic division behind the Boston Bruins, as we've talked about, and I'm not going to go down that avenue when it comes to the Bruins. It seems like week in, week out, all I do is talk about them. But the Maple Leafs, again, we'll keep our eye on them, but this trade, come playoff time, that's what we're going to look at as one of the big storylines. And it seems to be like they're a storyline every year when it comes to them, based on their recent track record and how they've been going on this drought now for what 56 years so we'll see what this trade's going to do for them long term but in the immediate future let's see if Toronto is going to respond here and make that push to get themselves in a position where they don't have to go up against the lightning of the world and as it is right now when we take a look at the standings that's probably going to be the case And hopefully they'll have a lesson or two learned from what took place last year when they lost to the Lightning there in seven games. A couple of other things. The outdoor game Saturday night, I put it on for a second, but without Alexander Ovechkin, it didn't have any buzz, any juice. Carolina did win 4-1 to in their first ever outdoor game down there in Raleigh where the Wolfpack, North Carolina State, in that stadium. And for Carolina, as we talked about going back several weeks, This is a team that is looking to see if they can punch their ticket to a Stanley Cup final. And what they did, especially over the middle portion of the season, going on a roll. And even with the Devils playing well, and the Devils getting reinforcements in their own right, where Jack Hughes is back in the lineup, had a couple assists in the game against the Penguins there on Saturday, and they won against Winnipeg yesterday. So having Hughes back, who is probably one of the early favorites to be in the MVP running in the league, even though we think it's going to be Connor McDavid winning another most valuable player trophy when it's all said and done. But for not only Carolina, as well as the Devils, as that's going to be tooth and nail to the very end, they're in the Metropolitan Division. They're only separated by three points as we speak. And as I mentioned about Toronto, they're currently also three points ahead of Tampa in the Atlantic Division. What's interesting is what's happening out west and before I even get to that I know the Rangers had that seven game winning streak snapped the other night in Calgary to where they were able to get some payback on Edmonton because if you remember early in the year when Edmonton I believe it was in November that Thanksgiving weekend when they came to the Garden and they were down 3 nothing in the third period and they scored four goals in the third to beat the Rangers at MSG well Go back to Friday night where the Oilers jumped out to a 4-1 lead in the first period. And then what happened? The Rangers get one in the second, two in the third, and win in a shootout. So they get their revenge. 
and some payback there to what Edmonton did to them early in the year, but then they did lose the following night in Calgary in overtime, 3-2, to two. so the Rangers who have been flying high, and I just wanted to give them their due, considering Carolina and the Jersey Devils and what they've done, but you can't discount what the Rangers have done here as they're four points behind the Devils there in the Metropolitan Division. Now out west, in the Pacific Division especially, where you have the Golden Knights, Kings, and Kraken all separated by two points where the Golden Knights at 72, LA Kings 71, Kraken at 70, where respectively, five-game winning streak, four-game winning streak, and two-game winning streak, modest for the Kraken. And as we know, the Kraken have been without their top scorer. I believe he's back in a one, Andre Burakovsky. But the Kraken have been able to stay afloat. They have not been able to sink a little bit despite losing their top scorer. The Kings have played beyond what I thought that they would. And they've hung in there very well out in the West, excuse me, in the Pacific with Vegas. And with Vegas, Jack Eichel, him returning back into the lineup a couple weeks back is huge to see what they're going to do. And when I look at the Pacific, that's a division that we're going to have to really keep focused on. And I get it being in the East, we're not really keeping an eye on what's happening out West kind of goes along the lines with baseball, even though the Dodgers have been the best in the sport, especially over the last decade. But for those, especially here out East, we barely or rarely pay attention to what's happening out West, but that's going to be a race to the finish to see who's going to avoid whom when it comes playoff time. And similar to the NBA, where you have about 25, 26 games left, a little bit more in their schedule than the NBA does. But that's going to be a race where the Central, as it is right now, Dallas, Winnipeg, even Colorado for that matter, and Colorado, you would think they may, when it's all said and done, be in first place as they're only two points behind Winnipeg in second place and the Dallas Stars five points behind them for the top spot in the Central. So we'll see what happens there. But it is going to be compelling, intriguing. I know we got to get through the rest of this month and into March, especially as we approach the trade deadline, March 3rd, which is what? Off the top of my head. A week from this coming Friday, the fall and winter sports continue to march on and I know it's a bit of a slog when we talk about these sports, but we're getting there as the playoffs are still a month and a half away, but we're getting close to the home stretch to the final quarter of the season and you know that Jay Reels will keep you posted on any and everything that's happening on both the hardwood and the ice. All right, now let me turn my attention to what's happening on the gridiron and I'm not going to get into the XFL just yet. I don't know if anyone's interested. I'm sure people probably aren't tuning in early on considering that they're just getting over the Super Bowl last Sunday. But speaking of which, a key contributor to the chief offense is now defected, or I should say maybe not defected is a bit of a strong word, but he's moved on from Kansas City and is taking his offensive coordinator hat to the nation's capital as the Washington Commanders are now the next stop for one Eric Bieniemy, And I think this is a great move for him. Not a good one, a great one. And I understand you could look at the recent coaching hires in Arizona and Indianapolis, and I talked about that last week, and I did not like either one of them, especially the one in Arizona. So you have to go back and listen to that if you're willing. But we don't know if he was interviewed for those two, at the time, vacant head coaching spots. And maybe even in the running, who knows? But for him to go to Washington where he can now run his own team, he escapes the shadow of Andy Reid. 
He doesn't have to worry about having to deal with any of the rumors or any of what's going to happen next with Eric Bieniemy. And we all know what has happened in the past with Bieniemy, whether it's the Rooney Rule not being fully implemented in certain teams or with certain teams, I should say, and him not being able to interview well. And also with him being under Andy Reid, I'm sure a lot of people looked at that as, oh, that's Andy's offense. We may not want to just take a flyer or have to push all our chips to the middle of the table to bring in a guy like the enemy in. And we understand that he does have a bit of a checkered past, which that also may be a cause of concern for some of these organizations and owners, okay? That's a, another story for another day. But for the enemy to now have his own gig where he could run the show offensively, with Ron Rivera. Now, of course, he's not coming with Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and that offensive line. We understand that. And that's something that you're going to have to remember. And this is a big offseason for this commander team because if they want to keep up with the Joneses, literally, whether it's Daniel Jones, who's now switched agents, and he's looking for that big payday this offseason, where the Giants made it to the playoffs, the Cowboys, as we all know, they made it to the postseason and made it into the divisional round, And you have the defending NFC champions and the Eagles. So the commanders have to get their quarterback by hook or by crook. Whether that's a guy like Derek Carr who's out there. I don't know what's going to happen with the draft. Can they move up? Can they get their guy that they're looking for at the top of the draft board? Those are questions that we do not have answered. But one thing for sure is that the enemy is going to take whatever he's been able to learn under Andy Reid over the course of the last five, six years and now implement his own offense with the quarterback, with whatever weapons on that team. And we know they have some weapons. Antonio Gibson, the Terry McLaurins of the world. They have guys that could play. So now we're going to really get to see what Eric Bieniemy is all about from an offensive standpoint. And then who knows? Does that mean that maybe he'll get that head coaching job that he's been coveting for God knows how many years? Or does Ron Rivera... Over time, maybe when he goes off into the sunset, is that going to be Eric Bieniemy's job when it's all said and done? Who knows? But now we're going to get to see, we're going to have to wait, obviously, but once September rolls around and all their pieces are in place as far as offensively goes and how Bieniemy is going to deploy them and how they're going to flourish in his system is going to be one that I'm sure a lot of the NFL fans are going to wait to see. So... That's something, obviously, for down the road, just to keep that back in your mental Rolodex. Now, as far as the XFL, is anybody into it? I'm not. I'm sorry. We understand that just three years ago, they did a reboot of the XFL, and locally, they had a team. I don't know if you were aware of this, but I did have credentials. I went out there a couple of times. I wanted to get a feel and was fortunate enough to get credentials to the XFL. I understand We didn't get a lot of traction only because COVID aborted that. And as we all know, they were put on ice and they went bankrupt, etc. To where Dwayne The Rock Johnson swooped on in, became a major investor with a few other people. And now the league is kicked off again this past Saturday with two games and two games there yesterday. Only eight teams. I didn't get wrapped up or even watched a wink of this. So let's see if this is going to have any traction to the football fan as we're now done with the NFL season. And then you have the USFL coming in April, which is going to be right after the XFL. So you're going to have a lot of football, whether you like it or not, whether it's 50 or 100 steps behind the NFL, we're going to understand that. 
But if football is in your blood and you just jones for it, no matter if it's peewee football, XFL, USFL, this is going to lead you into training camp come July where we could really focus in on the teams and the sport that really matters. But if you can't get enough of it, it's right in front of you here over the course of the next, I guess, what, eight to ten weeks and then with the USFL following that. So that's what I got with the NFL. With baseball, as all the camps are open with pitchers and catchers and you have a lot of the position players, I'm sure a lot have already trickled in and they officially begin, I believe, if not tomorrow, but Wednesday. The first thing I want to say before I even get to Manny Machado, Tim McCarver, who was a longtime Major League Baseball player, catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals and for the Philadelphia Phillies, his career spanned four decades, Started in 1959, ended in 1980, and then soon thereafter became a broadcaster locally for the Mets here on WR9 at the time and in Sports Channel. And then as he was able to spread his wings to NBC, ABC even before that, then of course got the big gig at Fox with Joe Buck there in the mid-90s, hosted many of a World Series, became, I'll even say it, the John Madden of his sport. Obviously not with the persona that John Madden had and of course all the stuff off the broadcasting or outside the broadcasting booth I was going to say off the field but for Madden and how big of a figure that he was now of course McCarver wasn't that he wasn't larger than life that Madden was with the video game etc but he was synonymous to his sport and what he did as a color commentator than what Madden did now a much bigger scale because the NFL is a lot bigger than Major League Baseball but He was our John Madden if you were a baseball fan. That's how great he was. With the Memphis twang, his honest and just very unique perspective of the game, very detailed, thinking man's game, educating the fan, as good as it gets, as great as it gets. Hall of Fame broadcaster in his own right. Thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to him. And I remember watching him as a teenager, especially on those lean Met teams, especially in 83, I believe that was his first year in the broadcast booth with Ralph Kiner and Steve Zabriskie. And then 84, that was their springboard to their success in the mid-80s, the Mets that was. And then he even got a stint there with the Yankees in the mid-90s or mid to late 90s when they moved from Channel 11 to Fox. Now I know I'm talking about it more from a local spin, but for those who live in this region and from this area, I'm sure they can relate. So McCarver giving him his due, may he rest in peace at the age of 81. But the big story coming out of baseball was Manny Machado and as he reported to the Padres in Peoria, Arizona to the tune where he made it known. He went to the Aaron Judge School of Free Agent Talk to say that he is going to opt out of his current contract after the season. Now, it's easy to say, wow, you're going to come right out 2023. You just step into your cleats. You walk out, you meet the press, and one of the first things you're going to say is, I'm opting out. Now, I didn't watch the press conference. I just read about it. I don't know if a reporter or a bunch of reporters had asked, knowing that he's going into an opt-out season, is he going to exercise that? So I don't think he voluntarily came out and said, hey guys, I'm Manny Machado and I'm opting out after the season. I don't think it went that way. But based on the market, And seeing all these players getting their exorbitant contracts, the aforementioned Aaron Judge, and the reason why I bring him up is because 
Same for Aaron Judge last year as we saw April 7th, the opening of the baseball season, where Brian Cashman, the GM of the Yankees, came out and said, yeah, we offered $213 million over the next seven years, blah, blah, blah. And Aaron Judge said, okay, that's fine, but I don't want to talk about contracts the rest of the season. I'm going to play it out and we'll reconvene come October, November. And as we saw, he had a season for the ages. Is Manny Machado going to have anything close to that? I could pretty much bet the ranch that's not going to be the case. We know Machado is an MVP perennial candidate, as we saw last year, as he was second in the MVP voting. We all know the type of player that he is. Dynamic defensively, puts up big offensive numbers, and pretty much what he has said to the baseball world is that, yes, I'm betting on myself to have that big year that come November of this year, I'm going to opt out and I'm going to want my final contract to be eight, nine, ten years and about $400 million. And good for him. I had no problem with it. I really didn't. I get it that he could have taken the high road and said, well, I'm just here to play baseball, guys. Big season. We made a lot of big moves this offseason. We came that close to winning a World Series or getting to a World Series last year. All I'm doing is focusing on this year. Could he have said that? Absolutely. But you know what? He kept it real. And it could either shine bright when it's all said and done, a la Aaron Judge, or it could blow up in his face and he may not even get close to what he would probably get in the offseason if he has a down year for him. So you know what? I know he's going to go in 100% knowing that this team has World Series potential. I would think if you're a competitive athlete making the money that he's making and the expectations, etc., of course he wants to get that brass ring. So I'm sure going into this quote-unquote walk year, knowing that he's going to opt out, he's going to be balls to the wall to put up MVP caliber numbers. But we don't know that. We can't forecast that. And for one Aaron Judge, the stars were aligned for him to get that big payday. Is that going to be the same for one Manny Machado? We will have to wait and see about that. All right, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of quickies. Uh, One was a bit of a surprise, and I didn't talk about this on the podcast Thursday because it wasn't a major tournament. The Genesis Invitational out there in LA. And for Tiger Woods to go into that tournament the first time in seven months, last time we saw him on a golf course was at the Open in St. Andrews last July. And for him to be out on the course and play a full 72 holes, four rounds, we haven't seen that going back to the Masters. And even though he played well on Thursday, had three birdies to close out, did not play well on Friday, he barely made the cut, and even admitted in the post-match saying that his putter was just off, and we all know that's one of his biggest strengths. But on Saturday, he shot four under, and it looked like, not to say he was going to be in the running or be close to the top of the leaderboard, but just knowing that he bounced back nicely after what took place on Friday, and then closed out yesterday, although he opened up with a birdie, and had two other birdies throughout the course of his final round, but he did have five bogeys and finishing two over and one under for the tournament. Two over for the day, one under overall. And it was good to see Tiger out there. We understand that he's still recovering from the back and the leg injuries from his accident going back. I believe the anniversary of that accident is this week, two years ago. So... He's still recouping from that, and he's, what, 47 years of age? So he's not a spring chicken when it comes to him being resilient as far as his body goes and being able to bounce back and recover as much of 
a workout fiend he's been throughout the course of his career. But it was good to see him out there. The bigger story was John Rahm winning the tournament and him getting off to a great start this year. It was his second tournament victory so far in 2023. He won the Century Tournament in Kapalua out in Oahu last month. And there was that crazy shot on 17 by his second place who ended up runner-up, Max Homa, who had that shot right outside of the green where it went past the cup, hit the pin, where that would have been a miraculous shot and who knows, it could have even led to a playoff between Rom and Homa, but that wasn't the case as Rom wins again and he is now ranked number one in the world where Rory McIlroy came into this year number one and now Rom, there's no debate and he's been a dominant player here on the tour for the last, what, couple of years? So for Rom to now get that distinction to be number one golfer in the world as we move closer, and we're still about, what, six, seven weeks away from the Masters, the first major golf tournament of the year, he is certainly already in midseason form as he wins yesterday, again, the Genesis Invitational out there in LA. And then finally, and I know I didn't touch on this Thursday, but the Super Bowl of Racing was yesterday, the Daytona 500, and I probably would not have made a mention of this only because it was historic, It actually went into double overtime. And when you think about a NASCAR race, you're not thinking overtime. But you had a record 212 laps, which is 12 beyond the scheduled distance. And it equated to 530 miles. So knowing that this race, as big as it is every year, and the reason why I didn't touch on it, people, it's not that I'm trying to neglect racing. When I think of auto racing, I think of the Indianapolis 500 because to me as a boy, and having the old AFX racetrack that you had to put together, and you had the Mario Andretti's of the world, the Al Unser Seniors, the Richard Petty's, where you had the batteries, and the the whole thing as a boy for Christmas, you wanted to get that racetrack set. And that was synonymous with the Indianapolis 500. And we understand NASCAR has been huge over the last couple of decades, and we understand the Daytona 500 has to get its just due because of the scope and the... It's called the Super Bowl of Racing for a reason. And with it being a record and historic race because of the overtime or the double overtime and the 212 laps that had taken place, which was the longest in 500 history, your winner was Ricky Stenhouse Jr., his first Daytona ever. So to think that it went to a guy who got his first Daytona under his belt and had to work doubly hard to get that, And in record fashion, so congratulations to him and his team. I believe his team off the top of my head is Brad Doherty, the former NBA player who is part of this group who represents Ricky Stenhouse Jr. So congratulations to the team. Congratulations to Stenhouse Jr. for winning his first Daytona. And again, in record fashion, the 65th running of the Daytona 500 as I spend a moment on that. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by. Your participation is never taken for granted. Thank you very much for not only listening to me, whether it's your first time, 10th time, 100th time, or if you've been here since the very beginning, thank you twice, more than once. And as I mentioned at the top, if you haven't done so, on wherever you get your podcasts, to please subscribe, rate, and review. Throw me a few stars, write a review, just so we can increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. It will go a long way. Take a screenshot on social media. Send it to me. Send it to the sports fan in your life. Please be more than happy to 
repost what you send to me on my social media accounts, which are the following on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, on YouTube, my YouTube channel, just J Reels, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. And if you want to send an email with a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And in conclusion, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page. That's P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. I'll actually put up a post in the next nine to 10 days or so as we approach the 50th anniversary. And I'll be able to share that on all my social media accounts. Whatever you want to put forth will go a long way to the production of this podcast, the upkeep of the website, the equipment. In fact, in due time, once I get some more traction on that particular platform, I'll have some exclusive content for you guys and gals, which will only be seen and heard on the Patreon page. So one more time, whatever you want to contribute will go a long way because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, as I like to say, and I'm not going anywhere as I'm here to stay, to share my passion. My fire, my fury, my energy for sports talk. I've been doing this pretty much since birth. I've been doing this, if you go to the website, for well more than 20 years. So this isn't a run-of-the-mill, overnight type of thing that I'm just experimenting with. No. This is my full-time occupation. And I want it to be full-time to the point where this is totally consuming. And it has been consuming in a great way. But more so, I want this to be my full-time gig to where I'm able to earn and able to make a living off this. That's why I mentioned Patreon. That's why I mentioned the social media accounts. Because they're important vehicles to contributing to where it is I want to go with this podcast and beyond. Because like I mentioned, fire, passion, energy, with my thoughts, feelings, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.